Uh, there are a lot of things that we could talk about from Psalm 89 because it's a longer psalm, 50 verses, 52 verses actually. And so uh, go ahead and turn there if you're not already there to Psalm 89. And as we look at this together, uh, we will do a little bit of what we normally do, but I want to also leave some time to kind of walk through the psalm with you here. Uh, so the first uh, thing that we typically do when we're looking at one of these psalms is this idea of some of the poetic devices or figures of speech that we notice in the psalm. Uh, so, for example, we see... Um, let's look at something like verse 4, where he says, I will establish your seed forever. What's, what's meant by that figure of speech or that picture? Jonathan? Okay, yeah, God's chosen people, the line of Abraham, and then later even David and so forth, so that they're going to have a certain um, a certainty of descendants, I guess we could say. Um, when we see in verse 8 where it says, your faithfulness surrounds you, what kind of picture is being painted there for us? Your faithfulness surrounds you, talking about God. Yes, Sandra. Yeah, God's continually faithful. And let's even build on that a little bit more. So God is continually faithful. Your faithfulness surrounds you. What's sort of the picture that we would have? Corey? Yeah, sky, cloud, water. God's faithfulness, building what Sandra said, is like this ocean or this vast expanse that surrounds him. It's not just a tiny bit of faithfulness. It characterizes him. It surrounds him. It is who he is, right? Um, when we see in uh, verse 10, again, we see this word Rahab. And from last week, when we saw that, who, who, what is this probably representing? What country? Anybody remember? Egypt, yeah. So probably a, figure, a figurative reference to Egypt. Rahab, one of the meanings of the word is pride, and so that characterized Egypt, and it's used several ways, several times that way in the, prof, in the prophetic books and also in the poetic books. Um, when we see in verse 13 a description of a strong arm, a mighty hand, and an exalted right hand, how should we think about that in reference to God? What's that a picture of? Okay, so he's, he's in charge. Okay, he's ruling. What else? Yes? God's all-powerful, right? Because God doesn't actually have an arm or a hand or a right hand. God is a spirit. Jesus takes on himself a human form, but God himself is not, it's not as though he has this massive arm stretched out across the Milky Way, right? It's just a picture of his power and his strength and his might, right? Okay? Um, and that his rule over all things in that context as well. When we see in verse 15 this idea of walking in the light of your countenance, what's the light of your countenance? What is that maybe referring to? Sandra? God's pleased. God smiles on those that, he, that are walking after him, right? Okay. Um, verse 17, our horn is exalted. And we see that as well later on, I believe, in... One of the later verses here. 
Anyways, but this idea of his horn will be exalted, what is that idea? Okay. Yeah, and if we look at verse 18 right after it and the phrase right before it, you're the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. Our shield belongs to the Lord, our king to the Holy One of Israel. So it's associated with rule, power, authority, just like you would have an, an, an ox or some other animal that has horns. It's a symbol of strength and power. The ruler that God has appointed, as God exalts him, the nation is exalted and God's strength is seen standing behind that. Um, trying to think some of the other ones that are important. Uh, when in verse 25 it says, I shall set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. Uh, verse 24 is what I was looking of. There's another example of his horn being exalted. But verse 25, his hand on the sea and his right hand on the waters. What's that a picture of? Or the rivers? Sandra? His control. Whose control? God's, but delegated to whom? The king of Israel, okay. And so if his hand is on the water and his right hand is on the rivers, what's that picturing? Expanse of his territory, right? Yeah. So it's not just God gave him this little tiny spot of land to rule, but God's going to bless him and expand his boundaries and his borders and all that sort of thing. Um, when we see in verse 35, once I have sworn by my holiness, what, what sort of picture is that supposed to be? I've sworn by my holiness. Who's doing the swearing? God. And swearing by his holiness is supposed to sort of convey what idea to us? He is holy, absolutely. But if he's, if he's swearing by his holiness, why? His faithfulness, okay. So because God's holiness is certain, if he swears by his holiness, it's, a, it's a, like in Hebrews, I think, or somewhere in the New Testament, it says, once have I sworn, twice have I said it. Like it's a certain promise. Because God doesn't change, his holiness can't fail, his faithfulness is persistent. He's made this promise, specifically verse 35 to David. I'm going to explain why that's important in a bit. But um, in verse 39, when it says, you profaned his crown in the dust, Referring to the king, his authority is cast low. We'll talk about the reasons for that a bit later. Um, in verse 47, where it says, For what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What, what does he mean by vanity? Emptiness, potentially. I think we see a parallel to Ecclesiastes. And while there are some instances in Ecclesiastes where vanity could be seen as emptiness, I think it's not inherently a negative thing. It's just, I mean, the best way to sum up the book of Ecclesiastes is, <sighs> it's a breath. It's there, it's gone, it's brief, it's fleeting. It can be beautiful and amazing and wonderful and all those things, but it's very short, right? I think that's the thing that he's stressing here, right? Um, and then in verse 51 where it says that they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. What's kind of the picture there that we might see? So reproach, I think, is obvious. It's, what's, 
what's a synonym of reproach? Maybe a mocking or It's a good question. Uh, I think it anticipates what Jesus will experience. I think the difference, though, is in this instance, I think it's talking about the Israelites in exile, and it is a, a deserved reproach, whereas with Jesus it was a reproach of him being innocent. So there's parallels, definitely, absolutely. Uh, the footsteps of the anointed, in my mind, I think the picture is sort of like this. God's people are fleeing before them, and they're mocking them as they run away. So I think that's the picture that we're supposed to see in that verse. What are some repeated ideas that we see in this psalm? And I know it's a long psalm, so you may not have had, uh, depending on if you read it previously, but I think there, you know, some of these should be pretty clear. If we were to look, for example, at verses 1 through 4, Jonathan? Yeah, loving kindness and faithfulness is in a lot of verses, 1 through 4, 14, um, 24. There's a number of places all throughout the psalm. Okay, so God's kind of these ideas going together. God's covenant, God's promises, God's loving kindness, God's faithfulness. That's repeated in almost half the verses of this psalm. One of those, so that's a really big idea in this psalm, okay? Then we have, uh, if you were to look at verses 5 through 10, what's sort of the picture that we have about God there? Yeah, and we see that picked up again in 11 to 13, 17 and 18, and I think as well verse 26 where it says, He's my God and the rock of my salvation. So all these, all these images of you are awesome among the gods, your arm is strong, you're mighty and exalted, that, that whole grouping of ideas is repeated throughout the psalm. There's also this idea of sin and God's response to it in verses 30 through 37, right? God pours out his wrath. If his sons forsake, if they violate, then I will punish, but I won't break off my loving kindness. I won't violate my covenant. There in this sort of shifts to this idea of it will endure and, and God will be with them. And yet... Then there's this tension, right? Because you've cast off and rejected, verse 38. You've profaned his crown, verse 39. You've broken down his walls, verse 40. All plunder him, verse 41, and just on down through there. God's pouring out wrath. The expectation is that it won't last forever or completely destroy, and yet it seems to have no end. And then there's this, as we come down toward the end of the psalm, there is sort of this grouping of ideas of that starts out with the phrase, How long, O Lord? And there's this sort of appeal to God on the basis of all the things that have come earlier in the psalm. What kind of psalm do you think we would see this as? I'm going to give you a clue. Start with verse 46. If we were to start with verse 46, I think it would be pretty clear what kind of psalm that it is. I'm going to say lament. And here's why. All of the verses leading up to verse 46 are just kind of an extended background to what he's going to say at the end of the psalm. So if we look at verses 46 through 52, it follows the classic pattern of lament. God, when are you going to help? Where are you? I'm overwhelmed. I need your help. And then this little bit of resolution at the end, blessed be the Lord forever. 
But because there's just this extended lead up and introduction, I think we tend not to immediately think lament because it sounds like it's starting out in a fairly positive and up, upbeat kind of a way. We'll talk a little bit more about why that is in a moment. Um, what are some truths we see about God? Jim. Okay, specifically which ones are really emphasized? Faithfulness, okay, good. What else? Some of the things we were just talking about a moment ago. God is faithful. What's that, sorry? What did you say? Yeah. Okay, faithfulness, loving kindness, those two are kind of paired together. And then as we get toward the middle part of the psalm, God is what? If he's awesome among the gods and exalted, then he's... Right? And power, strength, might, like all those kind of ideas, right? Um, and yet there's this sort of turn at the end of it. Right? I'm not, these are not intended to be trick questions. So, um, There's this point where it turns at the end, but everything has fallen apart. And so what do we conclude from that that is true about God in light of his relationship to his people? He's faithful and he's powerful, and yet, what does he sometimes do toward his people? Judgment, or we can even say discipline. And the reason that I would say discipline is not because it's not a kind of judgment, but because sometimes we hear judgment and we think like eternal rejection. And so I think we always need to clarify in the context of what God does for his people, it is, even if it looks really long from our perspective, it is a, it is a, thing that has an end, it's a discipline designed to bring them back, okay? If God is faithful, then what's something that's true about us? As we come to a faithful God. Yeah? Yes, in contrast, we are unfaithful. What should we do considering that God is faithful? We need to repent and we need to trust in Him, right? Yeah, both of those things. Uh, if God is strong, what should we do? We should recognize that we're weak. We should potentially fear him, right? But we should also have confidence in him because he's strong. He can help us despite the fact that we're weak, okay? And then um, what I think we see the psalmist doing here, and one of the big points that I want to emphasize in a moment, is we need to repent and appeal to God's promises when we have sinned. I'm going to explain why that is in a moment. All right, let me just walk you through here, uh, through this psalm. If you were to think about someone that you, you trust a great deal and then it seems that person does something unexpected. So let's say it's a parent, let's say it's a teacher, let's say it's some sort of authority figure that you know, you look up to, you respect, you think you have a certain idea about what this person is like and all of a sudden their attitude towards you changes. And suddenly, instead of being friendly towards you, they seem to be harsh and distant. Instead of being helpful to you, they seem to be unwilling to approach you. How do you make sense of a situation like that? That's, I think, what the psalmist is setting us up to ask as we look at this psalm. And so when we look at a psalm like this, we start out and we say, okay, verses 1 through 4, what do we see? We see 
that God is faithful and full of loving kindness. So we could say it this way, God is faithful. So verse 1, praise him. I'll sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. Because God is faithful, I should praise him. And God is faithful not only in a way that I should praise him, but it also explains why God is faithful. Why would we say God is faithful? Because he keeps his promises. So verse 2, in the heavens you'll establish your faithfulness. Verse 3, I've made a covenant sworn to David my servant. Verse 4, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. So the first thing the psalmist is saying is, God is faithful. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to praise him because of the promises he's made. That's how I know that he's faithful. And then the next part, building on the idea of God's faithfulness, God deserves praise as God in verses 5 through 18. The first thing we see in this section is, He is God alone exalted above all. Not just people, but the very heavens, verse 5, will praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? A God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? He's God alone. He's exalted above all, so he deserves praise. It returns to this theme of his faithfulness in verses 8 through 10. Your faithfulness surrounds you. It emanates from you. It characterizes you. And this is seen as he rules the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. These are consistent themes that the prophets and the poets of Scripture return to. God rules over creation and God rules over the nations. And these two things are demonstrations of his faithfulness. The seasons come and go because God is faithful. The nations rise and fall at God's design and purpose because God is faithful. So he deserves praise for those things as well. Because he's alone God, because he rules over creation and the nations, and then an expansion of this idea of him being creator. The heavens are yours, verse 11. The earth is yours, the world and all it contains. You have founded them. The north and the south, you've created them. Tabor and Hermon shout for joy at your name. You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. And so God's power as creator is demonstrated throughout the earth. And then it turns and says, uh, with regard to God's rule over all of the nations, it's founded on perfection. And so in it, his people rejoice and find strength. Verse 15, or 14, rather. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. This is kind of a theme verse in the psalm, and it's going to become important when we get to the end of the psalm because it's called into question. So we'll talk about that in a moment. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord and our King to the Holy One of Israel. So God rules over the seas, creation generally, but specifically, he says, God rules over the world in the context of the people of Israel. And God rules over the nations generally, but God specifically rules over our nation as Israel. And so for all these reasons, God deserves praise. God's faithful. God deserves praise. God makes promises to his people in connection with that faithfulness and as a reason for giving him praise. 
We see this in verses 19 through 37. Once you spoke in vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, with whom my hand will be established. My arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him, but I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He'll cry to me, You're my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I shall also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him, so I will establish his descendants forever, and his throne is the days of heaven. So, God makes promises to his people, and specifically to their king, specifically to David. God chooses David and promises to establish him and his people after him. But what if David doesn't follow God? Well, the second part of these promises that God makes, there's a positive side of it, of, it, of I will keep my word to you, and then there's a, a, a negative side of it of, and if you sin, here's what's going to happen. Verse 30, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. As surely as God has said he will bless David and his descendants in obedience, God will punish them if they are wicked and turn away from God. And yet he will not forget them. Verse 33, I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky, the sun, is faithful. God's faithful. God deserves praise. God, on the basis of his faithfulness and reasons which compel our praise, has made promises to his people, both positively if they obey, negatively if they disobey, and yet despite their disobedience, he will not forget them. Now we come to the problem. God rejects his people. Verse 38, But you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. You have broken down all his walls. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You also turn back the edge of his sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. What about your promises, God? You said, even if we sin, you won't forget us utterly. And yet, it looks like you have. Why did God do this? Because God's people went their own way. All the things that we're looking at in Isaiah, all the things that are reproved in the other prophets, the people that God made promises to repeatedly broke their promises to God. We'll serve you. Yeah, 40 years later, we're back to idolatry. We'll serve you. Most of the kings led the people into idolatry. We'll follow you. We forgot to follow you. 
we turned away from you, we rejected you, all these ideas. So that's why God's wrath came on them. What are you supposed to do with that? The thing that I put on your sheet, on the back of your prayer sheet, is call out to your faithful God even when His wrath is deserved. Here's what I think gets into our heads. I deserve whatever bad is happening in my life right now because I know that I'm a sinner, so why would I come to God and say, bail me out when I know that it's my fault? Obviously, there has to be repentance. You can't come to God and say, God, help me out. Fingers crossed, as soon as you help me out, I'm back to doing all the evil that I was already doing. You can't come to God hypocritically and falsely and without genuineness because God sees through that, right? But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about coming to God in a deceitful way, not that we could deceive God. I'm talking about the fact that when we have a sense that the disaster that it is in our lives is our own fault, we are hesitant to come to God because we think we deserve it, so why should we ask Him for help? But what does the psalmist do? He does what I think we're supposed to do in the same sorts of situations. Not because enemies have come and conquered us, not all those sorts of things, but whenever we have great difficulty come into our lives, we need to ask ourselves honestly, is there a an aspect of this that is God's hand of discipline purging sin from our hearts and lack of faithfulness from our lives. And to the extent that is true, we can, like the psalmist here, verse 46, say, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember what my span of life is, for what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? God, I'm human, I'm weak, my life is short. Your wrath could endure for generations, but I want to see the end of it because I only have this brief window to see your deliverance in. What's the further basis of his appeal? Verses 49 through 51. Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples, with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. God, my life is short. God, your promises should be true. Help us. And then there's this, this little upturn at the end of the psalm. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. In part, that concludes this third book of the psalms and transitions to the next book that starts with Psalm 90. But I think it is also meant to show the psalmist's trust in God and expectation that he will hear even though this situation is not clearly resolved at the end of this psalm. And so, going back to the illustration I began with, if we see someone that we feel like is someone that we can trust, someone that we can look up to, and all of a sudden it seems like everything changes, we should ask why. And even if the fault lies with us, with God there is a place to find deliverance and help and forgiveness and restoration 
from His wrath. But it's not ultimately about us. Does He make the appeal, my life is short, I want to see this resolved? Yes. But the far stronger appeal that He makes is, God, You are a faithful God. You've made these promises. You said, even if we go our own way, You will not cast us off forever. People get into arguments about which of God's covenants are conditional or unconditional or all of those sorts of things. But when you come to a psalm like this and you see God saying, even when you sin, I'm still faithful, it shows to us the focus should be less about whether God's people uphold their side of the thing throughout all generations, because the answer is clearly they don't. It should be about recognizing all our many failures. Do we turn back to the God who's faithful when we never deserve it? And so I don't know what you experience in your life up to this point. I don't know necessarily everything you're experiencing in your life, even at this moment. I don't know what you're going to have come into your life down the road. But sooner or later, there's going to be a point in your life when if you look honestly at where you're at, you're going to say, here is a set of circumstances in which I am miserable and overwhelmed and life is difficult. And if I'm honest about it, there's a degree to which it's my fault that I'm in this spot. And in those moments, we can be overwhelmed by despair and say, eh, I guess this is it. Or we can say, because God is faithful, I'm going to call to Him and He will help me and He can continue to use me and He can continue to keep His promises and He can be glorified and I can praise Him yet again. And so if, when you find yourself at one of those moments, the focus should not be on you. Woe is me, look at all my failures, look at how terrible I am. Because that's true, but there is nothing you can do by yourself to fix that. But when you turn to God, who is faithful and full of loving kindness and truth and makes promises and fulfills them over and over and over again, there is hope that though we are sinful, God will help. And though we deserve God's wrath, he can deliver us from it. And though we may be overwhelmed and without hope, God can provide hope in the midst of those circumstances. And so I think Psalm 89 says this, Call out to your faithful God even when His wrath is deserved.